0: Welcome to the Heads Up Community Mental Health Podcast. Join our host Joe DeVries with the Fresh Outlook Foundation as she combines science with storytelling to explore a variety of mental health issues with people from all walks of life. Stay tuned.
1: Hey, Joe, here. Thanks for joining me with my two guests, one a veteran and advocate, the other a clinical and research psychologist, as we explore the mental health challenges faced by military veterans. We'll also talk about emerging evidence-based opportunities for their recovery and the role we can all play in their healing. In the past, when I thought of a veteran, I'd envision a stooped old man wearing a navy blazer and beret, a red poppy, and perhaps some medals. That's a classic stereotype I know, But what I've learned is that veterans represent a variety of ages, cultures, abilities, and genders, with no two having the same story, nor the same psychological response to their time in service. Take Stephanie, a 26-year-old from Ontario, who served two tours as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan. She's a veteran whose post-war relationships are being healed through family therapy. Walter is a First Nations lieutenant from Manitoba, who was honored for bravery. He's a veteran now helping with research to understand PTSD among soldiers. Charlene, who's known by her colleagues as Charlie, was injured in Iraq during her third tour. She's a veteran who's interested in the potential of e-mental health to help with the anxiety she often feels. And David is a soldier who's gay. He enlisted to help protect his country and explore his own potential. Although he never left home to serve abroad, he is now a veteran who advocates for a military culture based on open and honest communication. So as you've heard, every veteran's experiences and mental health outcomes are unique. Before I introduce my first guest, let's set the stage for this conversation with some stark statistics from my researcher. So, Rick, what do the numbers show?
0: Well, of the almost 130,000 veterans served by Veterans Affairs Canada today, at least 20%, or about 26,000 people, are experiencing mental health challenges, such as anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is a common and debilitating condition that affects a full 10% of veterans. That's about 13,000 former military personnel whose PTSD makes them more susceptible to substance use, unemployment, poverty, homelessness, and suicide. And those numbers don't take into account the Canadian Armed Forces' 67,000 active troops and the more than 13,000 of them who will be prone to mental health issues after serving this country.
1: So what's the solution? Should we beef up recruitment and training measures to prevent mental health challenges in the first place, possibly ramp up the use of emerging trauma treatments, such as family therapy or prolonged exposure therapy, maybe boost research into the use of cannabis to manage PTSD, or perhaps as a country, stop soldiering altogether? My first guest has strong opinions about these and other potential strategies for positive change. To the military system in Canada, but first let's learn about his tours in Bosnia and Afghanistan, the resulting bowel conditions and PTSD, and the work he now does at the local and national levels to advocate for everything from veterans housing to the stigma veterans sometimes face from an uninformed public. Brian McKenna, it's such a pleasure and privilege to have you here with us today.
2: Good to speak with you as well.
1: So tell us your story.
2: So for me, when when people ask me about my background, they're normally asking about the, the military side of things. But if I just go a little bit before that, I immigrated to Canada when I was four years old. So I don't come from here. And in that regard, I do remember growing up as a kid feeling a little bit of a debt, if you could call it that, to something I didn't really understand. I had a family that obviously had been in Canada before, which is how we immigrated. But at the end of the day, I didn't really get why one country would turn to a person they don't know and say, come on in. And there was always desire to to meet that need. But the other truth of it is, I wanted to shoot guns and watch stuff blow up. I was a teenage kid, and I thought the Army was cool. So there was some grandeur to what I felt as in paying back a debt, but there's the largest part of what I was doing when I was deciding to join the military was to scratch the itch that most young teenage boys have and just to do something interesting and exciting. So the first couple of years were largely in Canada for me, and I think the first experience I could say with things like post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't my own. It was actually watching guys as they'd come back from Croatia, and they were trying to adapt back in Canada. And one of the biggest learning lessons for me watching it was that our country at the time, for various reasons, was downplaying what was actually going on. You could see on the news that there was a conflict going on, but the portrayal of the operations and the jobs that our soldiers were doing was often delivering aid or helping people, which was certainly part of the job. But the government and the the media of the day wasn't telling the story so much of repelling attacks from the Croatian army and the aftermath of that. So these soldiers were coming back, and they were essentially being told, we don't talk about this. Well, if you don't talk about the event, you don't talk about what the event's done to you. And it was a full, almost a decade later. I remember I was in Winnipeg on a different uh, job in 2003. I was training to go to Bosnia at the time when the government finally came out and gave those soldiers, first of all, an award from the governor general, but also the public acknowledgement that this attack did happen, that Canadian soldiers did serve valiantly, and that this was war. I mean, it was a couple of days of war, but the rockets, the grenades, and the bullets confirm that that it's war. And I think that has as much to do with our story as anything else. But I'll continue with me. So in 2000, I was just at a point in life where not too many other things were going on. I'd been in the military for a couple of years. And so I did the things necessary, putting in paperwork and volunteering to go over to Bosnia found myself in Winnipeg, interesting place, lots of bugs. That was about my experience in Winnipeg. And the next thing you know, I'm in Bosnia, and I will tell you that I can still remember the feeling of landing at the airport in Zagreb, capital of Croatia, because that's the normal way you do business is to fly into a relatively peaceful area and try and move by land into the area you're going to operate in. And landing at the airport. In Zagreb, and there was a hill just to the right side of the tarmac. And as you land, you're probably about a good 500 meters away from that hill, but you can see dug out into it were six Hind Soviet Warsaw Pact era attack helicopters. The kind you might have seen stories about flying over Afghanistan in the involvement that the Soviets had there. And they're a very ominous looking aircraft. It is not an aircraft that is armed, per se. We tend to look at it as guns that someone built an aircraft around. It is aggressive, and you know exactly what it is. And then as the aircraft does a horseshoe, we wind up closer to them. And I see another side of military life, which is most of the aircraft are actually broken, missing rotor blades, and aren't actually functional at all. They're actually parked into the hillside just to do exactly what they did, is to give you a little bit of a jolt. But then you come around and you see the other side of the military, albeit we've had this experience in Canada where the equipment is falling apart and it can't really do what it looks like it can. So I found that to be a really interesting 15-minute greeting to the Balkans was those emotions. Next thing you know, you're on a bus and you're being driven through uh, the southern Croatian countryside. And as you get further out of Zagreb, You start to see where less and less recovery and uh, repair from the war there has been done. So the bullet holes are more. The mine signs are all over the place. And that often means that there's more mines than just the ones that are marked. So from here on in, unless the thing underneath your foot is the vehicle you're in, it better be a hard pack road. You spend the next year of your life essentially not walking on gravel, not walking on grass, And that includes after you come back. I do remember coming back from Bosnia, going to my aunt's place in Burnaby for a barbecue and looking at the lawn and realizing I don't want to step on that. Knowing full well there's nothing wrong with that lawn, but in Bosnia, that lawn can explode. So that's the frame of mind you have. And on that tour, my first one, the war was over. The stress was certainly there. The people were very hesitant of each other, and I learned very quickly one of the things that causes war. I ran into people that had lived in their town for 60, 70 years and had never really left it, and they'd been convinced that the people, 20-minute drive down the road, lived in the lap of luxury and were the reason that they themselves lived in complete poverty and misery. And then we would drive to that other town— And realized, no, they're in as much misery as the one we've just come from, where that next town would have the same story about the other one, about how they were the source of all the problems. And you basically wound up with three societies in Bosnia that all thought the other one was the rich one, all thought that their ails in life came from the activity of the other two, and were naturally suspicious of anyone from the outside world. You also have to remember that that country had been a country for a couple of, of years, not a handful of years. And the decades prior to that, we were the enemy. We were those other guys, and they were part of the Warsaw Pact. They were probably the most progressive side of it in Yugoslavia, but they were still part of it. And the look of someone that really doesn't trust you and doesn't want you there is is a unique one. And it's one that's a little unsettling, but you learn to tell that apart really quickly from the one that actually wants to cause you harm. They are two very different looks, and they're very tough to take in. Before I leave that and go on to the next one, I'll tell you of of one thing that I think is really important to understand PTSD and other mental illnesses that soldiers go through is the concept of moral injury. One of the things that I encountered back home in Canada, I was raised quite largely by my grandparents. And when we were overseas in Bosnia, the Kosovo War was going on, and there was a lot of displaced elderly people in refugee camps. I remember one of the last jobs I had to do was go check on the security of one of these refugee camps in a town called Bosanski Pot- Petrovac, so Bos P we called it. Not so far down the road, I would say probably 30 minutes from where I was based. And we would go there enough, that people, the belligerents that would want to harm those people would think otherwise. So really they're just to be there in in that regard. Southwest corner of this refugee camp had a big garbage pile. And on TV, you might see pictures of, you know, kids written through that. And this one was old people. And for some reason, that one bothered me more. A lot of times when you look at a conflict zone, people will say, you know, the children are suffering And they were, but my emotional connection wasn't actually to the kids. It was to the plight of old people. And I think that's one of the parts where my morals had a little bit of a a jolt was because, you know, we're supposed to give our seat to old people on the bus. We're supposed to help the old lady open the door. The, The traditional things you do as a gentleman, I could not do that. Our rules or we were to stay in our vehicle unless there was a security situation that we needed to fix. And starving old people isn't a security situation. And We don't have the capacity to fix that. We don't have the aid or the tools or the time. And most certainly, that's what you wind up doing. So when you don't find a problem that you're there allowed by rules to solve, you look at it, you record it, and you leave. And I remember that feeling more than some of the threat that I encountered. I also remember we were supposed to never feed these folks because what we're supposed to do is get them to go to the aid agencies that are supposed to feed them and get them to get their country to do the jobs it's supposed to do. And our vehicle is loaded to defend ourselves if we need to, it's not loaded for aid. And remember, all I had that day. I'd already eaten most of the stuff out of my standard Canadian Forces box lunch. I had a juice box left. I remember as we were leaving, I chucked it at this old guy just to, you know, give him something. Which, again, we're not supposed to do, but fair enough. And I threw it. It hit him in the side of the leg, and he turned around and gave me what was equivalent to flipping me the bird or the middle finger from their point of view. And he stepped on it because he thought I'd thrown garbage at him. And then when he saw the juice pour out, he started to cry and tried to then bend down and pick juice up. And you can imagine how that doesn't work. And that was all I had to give him. So I remember watching him crying, holding an empty dripping juice box and me driving away. That was the last moment in that camp. And that was one of the last times there in Bosnia. I was on a plane home in a couple of days. And before I wrap up, I mean, there were future tours after that. There was another one in Bosnia. I went to Afghanistan as a soldier. I also went to Afghanistan as a NATO instructor. Some of my soldiers after I have released were in Iraq. And so my only involvement in Iraq was actually back here, just talking to some of them over the phone and counseling them. But I would say, even though I was in worse threat later on in life, that first tour in a hot zone, as a 21-year-old armed in a foreign country, and yet you come home realizing just how the world doesn't really work all that well in a a lot of those places. The interesting part is, and I'll I'll kind of wrap up on this, 18 hours after that, after leaving Yugoslavia, I'm in Winnipeg. A day after that, I'm walking down an escalator in Vancouver, and I am not ready to come back. I'm not ready to not be with my platoon. These are 34 guys that I would live and die for. I'm not ready to never see them again. I certainly wasn't ready to go to my aunt's for a barbecue. And subsequently, a lot of them I've run into. A lot I'll never see again. Three died in Afghanistan. One died since that in just a traffic accident in Manitoba. And that's the nature of it as well is even though it's a rough experience, you come back with these salt of the earth Canadians and then you hop off the plane and you largely don't get to see each other again. And that's the struggle to work through. So maybe I'll stop there just at the beginning.
1: Thank you so much for sharing, Brian, and especially for your service to this country and others as well. Love for you to talk a little bit more about PTSD and how that manifested for you when you got home.
2: You know, if you would ask other people around me, they might give you a different answer because they would have probably seen changes in me before I seen them myself. I'd say the first time I really had to say there was an issue was my driving. I was driving I wouldn't say aggressively, but I'm pretty sure everyone else would say it was, and the speed was up, and a lot of those things were just to kind of feel the, I would imagine, the rush or the buzz that we used to constantly live under. I think one of the things that people don't understand about soldiering, it does have scary moments. It's got some rough times. You play a lot of volleyball. You play poker. You eat meals. You phone home. I did a parent-teacher interview from Kabul, Afghanistan one day, just after a rocket attack, because that was the time I had, and that's when the parent-teacher interview was. That's part of being a soldier as well, is continuing to do the functions of life in a threat environment, and you get used to it. The first time something really scary happens to you, certainly your adrenaline goes through the roof, but the second and third and fourth time, There's a normalizing function that comes with that. And by the end of a deployment in Afghanistan, to be honest, when you hear a siren for a rocket attack, most people by that time are just rolling their eyes and, oh, here we go again, as opposed to the first time, which you're sweating and struggling through. So it's not to say that that's a good reaction. It's just to highlight the fact that you get used to a constant level of stress. You adapt to it. And then you come home and walk off the plane, go down the stairs after you've been in a place like that and run into people that don't even know what country you came from or that were there or that things that are nasty happen in the world. Instead, they're wrapped up in, you know, their Netflix subscription isn't working properly or. They've got a problem, they missed the bus, they got in a fight with their girlfriend, and you're trying to put on the same scale your experiences of things that now cause you stress with what they're losing their mind about. And the disconnect, it's such a struggle to deal with. And one of the things you find is soldiers will practically go out of their way to redeploy because they feel calmer back there in that threat zone than they do here. I can tell you these days, I can get more stressed out over a computer program that won't load properly than I ever get about something that's actually scary. I remember one time when I was in the height of my reactions, I'd blown a tire on the highway and I'm changing it on an area of the highway with no shoulder. I didn't have any flares or cones to mark my spot. And cars are flying by and I'm laying on the ground and Vehicles going inches from you as you're changing a tire in the rain didn't bother me. And then I remember getting back in the car and trying to get my voicemail to work and losing my mind and getting ready to throw the phone out the window and feeling all the stresses of being under attack and largely because it was just a thing I was handling that I couldn't handle. Whereas to anyone else, they would look at that tire situation and go, well, that's the worst part of today. That's the risk. Yeah, but not in my brain. And that's a lot of what you wind up dealing with is, you know, your 20-year-old son will hop on the plane and he'll go to another country. And then he'll come back, maybe 21-year-old, and he's completely used to real crazy stressful situations. And he's no longer adapted to having dinner or having a long conversation or... That kind of thing. So what I've actually found is that it's the day-to-day stressors that give us the most grief. And I find soldiers routinely going towards the thing that used to bring them stress. Now, whether that's deploying again or getting in fights or picking arguments or whatever that thing is that rises that part of, the, of their reaction, that's often what happens.
1: So knowing that no two veterans' stories are alike, what are some of the challenges you haven't faced that others maybe have?
2: I was in a fortunate enough place that after I'd come back from deployments, I could pick the courses I wanted to take. Largely, I could influence what was next for me. A lot of people in the military don't have that. I'll leave them nameless, but I'll describe a situation of a friend of mine who just got back from Iraq in January. He's in Edmonton. He's now deployed on this COVID-19 mission in Quebec. He'll be going to Latvia next year. And in the meantime, between now and then, he's probably being moved to New Brunswick. And a lot of times people will look at whether it's the American forces or the Canadians they will go, well, back-to-back tours, or you deployed you know, five times in 15 years. What they won't look at necessarily is, how many moves did you have during then? How many divorces? Did anyone in the family die? All the regular things that come with normal life, on top of the things that come with deployed life. And then you have on top of that, the military structure, just as it is, is going to throw extra stress into you as well. So if you think of the soldier that I've just explained to you, that in the next, if you look at last year and next year, he'll be out of the country most of it. He's doing the covid situation now and he doesn't even know where his house is going to be in the next couple of weeks what is the stress level of that
1: so i assume then that those elevated stress levels whether or not they lead to psd can certainly trigger things like unemployment poverty homelessness addiction suicide and one thing i heard you talking about brian is hermiting can you tell us about that
2: Well, what I would say is one of the things that a lot of people suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder do to cope is when they find that they're not coping, they try to find a way to turn the volume down on pretty much all aspects of life. And they can withdraw. They may even physically withdraw and actually move to smaller towns. They'll isolate themselves. I do know people that have completely removed themselves off the grid. It is quite normal for us to find not only homeless veterans in this country, but comfortable homeless veterans because they've chosen to be homeless. And I know that will actually ruffle a lot of people's feathers, but it is one of the situations we've found. There's a number of them we've encountered that actually have decided to go live in the bush. Or they live a transient lifestyle from one shelter to another because that constant motion is actually how they feel their throwing someone off their track or not going to be caught, if you might call it that. Those things, luckily for me, I haven't gone through that, but I've certainly found people and helped pull them out of it. I would say that's a lot of what happens as well. And the hermiting is a big point of it. And so I would just tell you that the COVID-19 realities, in my mind, are just adding another layer onto that. Because here we could have situations where we're trying to pull people out of a hermited lifestyle. And now COVID-19 is putting them back in their basements, getting them to disconnect from their family and friends. And that's just going to present more challenges.
1: So, Brian, you were diagnosed with PTSD. Yes. Can you tell us what you did to heal from that? I assume that you're probably still healing. Right. But what were the kinds of treatments or therapies or tools you used to to kickstart that process for you?
2: So to properly describe my situation, yes, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I also caught an intestinal bug in Afghanistan. And how they're related is the fact that stress reactions for me would often then raise my breathing, raise my body temperature, raise my pulse, and the result of that would be the parts of my gut that had been damaged by the bug would then start bleeding. So stress reactions for me would often be followed almost immediately by intestinal bleeding. So that was a trickier one to handle. The interesting part was sometimes I would notice the bleeding before I would notice that I was stressed, and you could almost look at it as a Positive indicator, although it was certainly a negative one. Treatments for me. If you'd have met me two years ago, you would have seen me with my service dog, Sasha. That was probably the biggest tool in getting back to a healthier life. I'd also say, though, that I went through a couple of different programs. One of them was a 10 day program run out here. It was called the Veteran Transition Program at the time. It's called the Veteran Transition Network now. I'll never tell anyone that I know the special sauce for them, but I will tell them what worked for me. And that was one of the keys to me healing and getting my function back. I think the last thing I would wrap that answer up on, it would be to say, helping others is a help to itself. When you feel that other people have kind of helped shepherd you, then it's natural to look at it as your turn. It's also one thing that when you leave the military as a leader in a leadership role, like I was then, you miss helping soldiers. And, well, one of the ways to help soldiers is to advocate for them. So I found a lot of my own healing and peace came through being able to help others.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about your advocacy work and the wide range of initiatives that you're involved with?
2: Sure. So the last thing someone might Recognize it would be just over about a month ago, we were dealing with a homeless veteran that materialized out in Chilliwack an hour from me. And the folks that were looking through the file trying to authenticate that this person was indeed a veteran were in Ottawa, the people that actually controlled the, the charitable organization that helped him were in Halifax. I'm in North Delta, just half hour outside of Vancouver. This man is in Chilliwack. Never met him to this day, but through the internet and the phone, through those three different cities in Canada, trying to coordinate the response to a person that we'll never find. And in the end, we're successful at doing that. But it's it's quite the the tricky situation to try do. And so now imagine trying to do that down a logging road in Invermere or somewhere off the beaten path in PEI. It just adds different layers of complication to it. That said, I have found homeless vets closer to me than that. And I'm not just wrapped up in the world of homeless vets, but it is one of the things that you can provide a tangible physical solution to. And so it's one of the things that were we to get our act together, I think we would be able to make some headway on. So that's why I bring that up. But I've also... Advised the minister. I've advised the ombudsman. I sit on advisory councils for both of them. And I've been doing a lot of that in the last little while.
1: I'm interested to know about the structure of the military and how it impacts soldiers' mental health. So first, a bit of background. Rick, what organizations in Canada have a role to play here?
0: Well, Joe, there are three main arms of the military in Canada. The Ministry of National Defence is responsible for planning, policies, and budgets. The Canadian Armed Forces recruits, trains, and deploys troops in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Special Services. Veterans Affairs Canada then provides physical, mental, and financial support to those whose service is complete. About 90% of the $4.4 billion VAC budget is earmarked for payments to veterans and their families.
1: And I know that Aligned with VAC is a Veterans Advisory Group, of which Brian is a member, and he also provides input to the Veterans Ombudsman, who identifies and assesses existing and emerging veterans' issues, and also responds to veterans' complaints.
0: And new in March 2020 is VAC's Office of Women and LGBTQ2, which was established to identify barriers for these distinct groups of veterans and provide the specific support and services they need.
1: Great info. Thanks, Rick.
0: My pleasure.
1: So, Brian, my question to you is, are these bodies doing a decent job of protecting soldiers' mental health and mitigating the inevitable challenges that do arise?
2: I would say that they're doing probably a better job than the average person might think. When you look at joining the military, there is a basic psychological assessment that goes on. But my point is, there is one. They do assess, they, and they do weed out some folks on on those regards. So you might think of that and say, "Well, we have this elevated population to some degree, at least in resiliency to to trauma." But then you've got to add into that equation the scale of trauma that you're going to go for. And I try and remind citizens when. We wind up talking about this. That when we say there's no life like it, we're talking about not just what you got to do, but what you have to do when there's a problem. So what I mean by that is, unfortunately, the Canadian Navy and well, the Air Force and the Navy have lost a six-person crew off the HMCS Fredericton last month as it was conducting operations in the Mediterranean. Any other job site in this country that lost six people would shut down. I can promise you that's not what happened on the Fredericton. They certainly would do the recovery operations that they would, but they also have to continue operations. When we lost four or six or three soldiers in an event in Afghanistan, we don't stop the conflict. It keeps going. Ask any local company or business or even law enforcement what they would do if they lost three or four people, and they normally would pull back from that operation. That's not what happens in the military. If you get blown up on the way to escorting the ambassador somewhere, you still have to escort the ambassador. If you're trying to pick up someone that needs to be moved across the border and it costs your platoon four lives, you've still got to get that done. So that's really what people have to keep in mind. The military does what it can do with what it has, but we don't have the luxury of stopping when there's a problem to see how everybody is. And this is one of the problems that happens with the, I would call it the institutional stress when you come back, is you wind up dealing with other departments in the government that treat you as if you could stop that. We routinely have people that get injured, whether it's in Canada or overseas, and one of the questions they run into from other sides of the government, particularly when they're processing claims, is, well, were you wearing ear protection at the time? Or did anyone see that happen to you? From the mentality that the rest of the government has, that there's, you know, safety inspectors on site and people stopping anything that's dangerous, it's war. You know, and, and I really need people to understand what that means. You know, if you look at our Air Force here, every day they are tasked with search and rescue operations, on our oceans and in the north. They don't get to turn that off if someone dies on base. They've got to keep going. And that's got to be part of the consideration when people have the conversation about what the military is up to. It's doing what it can, but it cannot stop the war because you're suffering. So it has to act in different ways.
1: When we talked earlier, Brian, you mentioned that the size of Canada's military can have an impact on mental health?
2: Well, I would say that I don't think there's any argument in the country that our military is small. I will leave it up to other people to argue about what's the right size or if something's too small. But I will say we have millions of square kilometers. We have a largest coastline in the world. We are involved in a number of different countries. As I've told you, we don't We don't have the luxury of having soldiers that are focused on just a mountain environment or a brigade ready for going to the desert. It doesn't work like that. In a military of this size, everyone has to be able to do everything. That also leads to other stuff when it comes to injuries, like if you aren't able to do everything, you're probably going to get released, whereas in some other militaries around the world, they might be able to find a place for you. Canada. Doesn't really operate that way. If you can't fight tomorrow, you're probably going to be released from the military. How to fix that? Well, that's complicated. And is it fixable? And I would suggest to you that the smaller your military gets, the more every single person needs to be capable of doing a basic level of combat. And so that's something that has to be considered. It's, as I said to you before, it's very, very normal for someone to have to come out of a war zone and then go into a domestic operation. This country calls on its military routinely for domestic operations. You know, it's the Winnipeg flood, it's COVID, it's the Olympics, it's the G8 summit. It's a whole host of forest fires and floods. And if you would go back a couple months, we're doing snow removal in Newfoundland, all the while keeping our air picture up on NORAD, all the while keeping ships at sea. And that's the thing is all too often people see the military from what's on in the news. And I'll tell you one of the things I find the most insulting is when I see a comment, whether in the media or even on social media of why can't we use the military for X, Y, and Z, they're not doing anything. And that one is actually harder to stomach than someone saying, you know, off you go on your next mission. It's That idea that the the military comes back and sits on their laurels, I tell you, it's it's just not the case. You come back to to moving, to taking a course, to teaching a course, to deployments, to exercises. It's just, it's such a constant stream. And the size of your force and the amount of jobs handed to it, that's just math we can't deny.
1: Given that you have your finger on the pulse of all things veteran-related and the fact that you sit on the Veterans Advisory Committee, what do you think are the, the major issues veterans face today?
2: Personally, I have a claim I'm still working on for myself that's been going on for a long time. I could tell you that there's a lot of mental peace when those things are solved and when they're still in the process. There's just... This feeling of unfinished business that goes on for a while in anyone's workplace. If in your workplace there was an injury and you had applied to a, a workers' compensation board for that to be rectified, and you were waiting for answers nineteen months down the road, that would add levels of stress that really are ought to be fixable. We'll put it that way. That's one of the things that is out there. But I tell you, one of the biggest problems, and I don't actually know how to solve this one all that well is coming home to a country that doesn't know you're at war. And right now, I don't know how else to tell this to you other than your country is in war zones. A couple of them right now. And some that I don't even know about because that's the nature of special forces. But Iraq is a war zone. You know, Iran launched missiles just a couple of months ago into Erbil. That's the base in northern Iraq that has Canadians based at. You know, we were at a base that was under ballistic attack from the neighbouring country. But would you think that that's the situation that's on the average Canadian's mind that is wondering when Starbucks will open or whatever the local problem is? That is one of the biggest things that's going on. Every day, thousands of Canadians are doing their job in the military in a high-risk situation. And they come home to a country that largely doesn't know that.
1: Or maybe doesn't care.
2: I think they would care if they knew it.
1: You've also mentioned that we sometimes ignore or undervalue the work being done by non combat forces. From what I understand, these folks can be equally stressed even if they never leave Canada.
3: Yeah,
2: that's true. I mean, I'd say it's a pretty daunting uh, responsibility to stare at a screen looking for a foreign aircraft coming over the, the north of the country. It's, it's pretty challenging to be the one that responds to a ship that's sinking off the coast of Newfoundland. And I do have friends that wear medals of bravery and stars of courage that their, their action happened in this country. I mean, I'm reminded of one man I used to work for. I admire him greatly. And he, he wears the Star of Courage. From a moment where they had to parachute onto an ice floe to save an Inuit hunter who had gotten separated from the rest of his crew, you just think about that: parachuting onto ice. You know, I've parachuted before for fun, and it's terrifying. Doing it into that environment, it's, it's such a challenge, and yet the average Canadian wouldn't think about that. And yeah, I, I, I hope we don't get obsessed with deployments when we're trying to figure out where the next case of mental illness is going to come from.
1: You've also talked about the fact that many non-combat forces are moving regularly if they're in a teaching role or a supervisory role, and that that takes them away from their families for long periods of time.
2: Promotions often come with moves in the military, specifically if you're in the, in the full-time in the regular force. They can do that in the reserves, but generally not. So yeah, there's almost a trepidation sometimes of getting promoted because that means, do I leave? I I remember cases of where, you know, friends of mine, when they were in Winnipeg and they might have to move down the road three hours to a base called Shiloh. And the consideration from the military's point of view was, well, do we move the soldier or, or do we not? Do we move the unit or do we not? And Nowhere in there did it seem that there was a consideration of, well, his wife is a bank manager at CIBC, or this person's kid just got into this school, and now you're posting the family to Quebec. So those things present challenges as well, and they take a beating on mental health.
1: I know there are dozens of veterans groups around the country who do advocacy work But what can individual veterans do to further the cause of mental health?
2: I believe, you know, when you know better, you do better. And there's smarter ways to advocate than others. I know this because in my beginning, I wasn't necessarily doing it as smart as I could. I've seen policy change from Ottawa that has spread out across the country. And when it changes, it can affect hundreds of lives overnight. I've seen people struggle as well to try and fix these cases one at a time. And while we need that personalized care, vets certainly need someone to contact them and and help them manage their situation. In the end, I'm of the opinion that dollars to donuts, as you're spending your time as wisely as you can, there's some solutions to be had at the national level. And we need to realize where those, those powers are. It took me a while to realize, for example, I don't think it was until I was in my 30s that I realized exactly what the power of a parliamentary committee was. And I learned that through advocacy. I, I knew of them in the past. I understood what a textbook might tell you about it. But I never really understood how it can frame the tone of what the government is going to do for the next little bit or how you can ask them questions and then they can go to the people in the departments and ask them that exact same question and, and demand an answer, which you don't necessarily have the right to do. And so that was that's what I would call smart advocacy is sometimes groups have to bury a hatchet. Sometimes they have to coordinate and get together. And if they can produce a homogenized message and ask it at the right point, you can make things move.
1: Before we open up the discussion to our next guest, Brian, I'd really like to dig deeper into your experience as a peacekeeper representing Canada abroad. First, did your service help build, do you believe it helped build a more peaceful world?
2: I I do believe it does. I also think it's very difficult to, to rationalize them all at the same time. I mean, I think if you look at conflict around the world, and you look at the fact that we're not in every conflict zone, You're forced to ask yourself the question, why did we go to this country versus that one? And that's a tough question to answer sometimes. So, yeah, we're certainly providing value where we go. I have no doubt about that. At the very least, you at least sustained some semblance of peace for a while, and that buys time. People go to Croatia and Bosnia on vacations. That's becoming more normal. If you would have asked people that 30 years ago, watching, you know, Sniper Alley in Sarajevo 25 years ago, I should say, that's just not the way people would envision it. But Canadian soldiers are directly attributable for the fact that that country lives in a relative peace. You can't say it's all fixed, and there's certainly tensions there, you know, with a lack of a attention to the tension, it could simmer over at any point. But today, in the in the world we have not the world we want it's fairly improved it's peaceful that's a good thing you know and we we have to be able to see that and I speak about that country because that's a lot of my own experience but leading up to that point Canada has a track, track record of doing that in a, in a lot of places that people weren't paying attention to
1: so from your own perspective Do the outcomes justify the sacrifices you made?
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I mean, half the problems that I'm illustrating to you are the, the result of just how good it is here. And other people made it this way. You know, like I said, I immigrated here to a country that looked after me. I came to a land that has the things that it has because other people fought for it. And yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no question about that. I, I never spend time really worrying about, was it worth it? Of course it was worth it. I would do it again today.
1: Brian, I can't thank you enough, not only for joining us, but for sharing your incredible story. You are articulate and engaging and such an amazing advocate for your fellow veterans. So thank you very much for being here today and for being who you are.
2: I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. As I've said to you before, you know, educating the Canadian public, I think, is one of the key things to advancing the cause of vets. And on that note, I want to hear what your next guest has to say.
1: Before introducing our next guest, I'd like to thank a major heads-up sponsor, the Social Planning and Research Council of British Columbia, or BC, which is a leader in applied social research, social policy analysis, and community development approaches to social justice. Lorreen and her great team support the council's 16,000 members and work with communities to build a just and healthy society for all. Our next guest is a professor of psychology at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario. She is a renowned expert on traumatic stress and the use of individual and joint therapies for PTSD, especially among veterans. Her more than 150 publications focus on developing, evaluating, and implementing PTSD treatments and relationship factors in trauma recovery. A Beck Institute scholar and author of seven books, she was named Trauma Psychologist of the Year by the Canadian Psychological Association in 2013, and Outstanding Mentor by the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies in 2014 and she was inducted into the Royal Society of Canada in 2016. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Candace Monson. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much
3: for having me.
1: You've had an extensive and celebrated career in the research and treatment of veterans with PTSD. What drew you to that specialty and what continues to stoke your passion for it? My
3: passion for PTSD and veterans specifically dates back to my training. So when I went to graduate school, I was really interested in violence and perpetration and thought I was going to be a forensic psychologist, you know, evaluating people who had committed crimes and perhaps had mental health issues and in my capstone training year, before I got my PhD, I was very fortunate to get placed at the Boston VA, working in the National Center for PTSD.
1: So, Candace, for those of us in Canada who don't know what VA means, can you explain that?
3: Oh, for sure. So, in the U.S., VA means Veterans Administration, So it's the network of hospitals that serve veterans in the U.S. So I am originally a U.S. citizen, now proudly a Canadian citizen as well. And my upbringing and training was in the U.S. And as I was saying, that training that really took me to serve veterans was originally at the Boston Veterans Administration Hospital or the Boston VA. And you know, at that time, so this would have been nineteen ninety-seven. And I was serving training and serving a lot of mostly at the time, Vietnam veterans, some Korean veterans, men, some World War II veterans, but predominantly Vietnam veterans. And you know, at the time, people were really thinking about PTSD as this life sentence. Like this was a chronic pernicious mental health problem that really the best you could do was provide palliative care, meaning let's like try to relieve as much suffering as possible. And that led to, honestly, a lot of polypharmacy, like trying to medicate various symptoms. So sleep problems, agitation, attentional problems, you know, some, some cases, aggression, or trying to give therapies, talk therapies that were focused on skills. Like, so how do we improve their interpersonal skills or their anger management, stress management? And at the time, there was some work that was going on outside of the VA system. So outside of veterans with civilians, mostly, mostly with women who had been victims of interpersonal violence to show that taking people back to focus on what happened to them and working through that in different ways, different methods, could actually relieve the symptoms of PTSD. And that by going after the cause of those symptoms, not only could you ameliorate the suffering, but by going after the cause could actually maintain those gains over time. And I think my experience of treating veterans and being fortunate to start to learn those treatments that took people back to move them forward was extremely compelling. Hearing people's most intimate experiences that were horrifying. And as Brian mentioned, our other guest, you know, at some points, devastating to their sense of who they were and what they thought they would be doing in the course of of their experience in the military, and watching them come out the other side to this day, 23 years later, is really what's kept me in the field, that there is this potential for people to come out the other side. Stronger, grittier, more nuanced and textured and interesting, and to be thrivers you know, not just survivors, but thrivers. And you know, to me, that is an incredible honor to be able to bear witness to that. To allow you know, for someone to allow me to be a part of that process is just such a privilege and has really. I think, sustained me and my, you know, career since then and kept me committed to PTSD as a field, but also veterans more specifically.
1: So before we talk about your research and treatment successes, I'd like to take a step back and build on what Brian shared about veterans mental health. So let's say there's a trauma continuum or spectrum on one end as a private who perhaps breaks his arm in a minor altercation. On the other end is a soldier who maybe loses his legs and or watches as his best friend is gunned down. Along that continuum, can you predict who will experience what kinds of trauma and how they should be treated?
3: Sure. It's a good question. So, In terms of the question about like who will experience what kinds of trauma, you know, certainly there are certain units or occupations, you know, within the military or even outside the military. So we know first responders can be, you know, at particularly high risk for exposure to trauma. And so... Obviously, there are certain occupations that put you at higher risk that you're more likely to be involved in the exposure. I think a really important thing, though, to remember is that what is traumatic to one person may not be traumatic to another. And so all of our efforts to develop trauma severity scales have kind of failed because It's so individualized about the kinds of experiences that people have and based on their background, based on also factors that are going on at the time of what happened, like within their unit or within their family or within the environment in which they're serving. Like there's so many, it's just so multifactorial, about what can conspire, you know, all of in that alchemy, what can conspire to ultimately lead to mental health problems. Now, that said, the epidemiological data would tell you that, you know, men, interestingly, men are much more likely to be exposed to traumatic events and much more likely to be exposed to accidents and military-related traumas whereas women are more likely to be exposed to interpersonal violence and, and specifically sexual assault. So, there you know, there are some, I guess, patterns of the type of exposure, but there are just so many factors that go into then how people experience those events as traumatic or not.
1: We can't have a conversation about mental health without talking about stigma. So I'm wondering if you can talk, about internal and external stigma and the impacts that each has on veterans mental health and maybe even on their recovery. So, I mean just
3: to start with stigma, I think we probably generally think about stigma in the in terms of the external type. So, like the messages that people around us and those people forming society tell us about, in this case, mental health, right? And and the appropriateness of seeking treatment, what it means if you do have mental health problems after you're exposed to stressful events. And then those messages obviously can influence the kinds of messages that we send ourselves, which is the internalized stigma. And, you know, both the external and the internal can serve as, you know, major barriers to people accepting that they have mental health problems, accepting help for them and can be important to getting to treatment but then also profiting from treatment. So, let me give you an example. Something that I think we run into with veterans and military members is some gendered messages about Tough, like toughness and masculinity, and the idea that, you know, getting to treatment signals weakness. So, that, you know, that obviously can be an impediment to people getting the help that they need, maybe not even recognizing it or not wanting to recognize it. But then within treatment, some of those stereotypes about toughness can also get in the way of doing the treatment. So, You know, the treatments that I've developed, for example, and others require people or recommend that people, you know, feel the natural feelings that one would have when you're presented with life-threatening or injury-producing situations or, you know, watching really sad situations like Brian shared, you know, with the old man and the juice box. Like, that's a really sad scene and part of people getting beyond those kinds of experiences whatever they may be is we we know that health is having people feel those feelings but if you've been sent the message that feeling your feelings is less than weak a sign of not being you know masculine that that can actually even get in the way of benefiting from the treatment so this issue of stigma I think is really important for us to try to address as a society both as the people who are providing services but the advocates like Brian who are you know out there sending a message and trying to normalize that it's okay to say you have problems it's okay to get help and also that you know it's possible to get better like going to get help doesn't mean that you're forever going to be in the state that you are when you go to get that help So really important for us, I think, to address to ultimately help people.
1: So speaking of people getting help, based on your research and experience, what are the most effective treatments for the big three? And by those, I mean depression, anxiety, and PTSD. So
3: across the various countries and organizations have issued treatment guidelines for these conditions, so PTSD and depression and anxiety, and across all of them, cognitive behavioral therapy emerges as the, the most tried and true and effective treatments for these conditions. In the case of PTSD, the frontline recommended treatments are generally cognitive processing therapy which is heavy on the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy, and prolonged exposure, which is heavy on the behavioral part of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is systematically taking people back to those memories of what they experienced, and also people, places, situations that are reminiscent of the trauma that they may be avoiding. And Across the guidelines, they tell us that those should be the frontline treatments. They're they are, they are short-term, and they're very structured, and they're very active in terms of the, the person with these problems really engaging and being an active ingredient in their own healing and recovery.
1: So can you tell us about a veteran, for example, who you might be helping through Prolonged Exposure Therapy? What are the steps that you would go through in that process?
3: So one of the first steps is, you know, just making sure that the person has PTSD, has anxiety, has depression. So a really good assessment. So just thinking for the consumers who might be hearing this talk, you know, that would be, or this podcast, that this would be something i would look for and might ask about is you know how, like how will you know what i have and so really starting with a good assessment and then part of that assessment will be finding out with the person what are the experiences that they had that were most traumatic so going back to your you know your prior question for that person what of the range of things they may have experienced in their lifetime was really Challenging, difficult, distressing for them. And then with prolonged exposure, the clinician would give them a lot of education about the idea of approaching versus avoiding what it is they fear. And that approaching can take the form of approaching the memory. So the memory of what happened in those distressing events and really explaining that it's a memory and that the memory can't hurt you, it can't happen again, but it needs to be digested. And in this case, the digestion is to go back to it and approach it just like you would any other phobia. So if you were afraid of spiders, right, that you would systematically keep approaching that spider until you didn't fear it. And so the same would be true about the memory. So in the session. The client would walk through that memory, typically eyes closed, first person, present tense, walking themselves out loud through that memory from the beginning all the way to the end, and they would retell the story over and over until there was less anxiety about the memory. The other part would be working with the client to figure out what's in their day-to-day life that they may be avoiding. So. Is it driving in the case of someone with a motor vehicle accident? Is it open places? Is it the smell of petroleum or perhaps a veteran? And then systematically having them approach those things in the environment to, again, get rid of the anxiety that is associated with it.
1: We've also talked about family therapy. And how can that be used to help ease veterans' challenges?
3: I have to admit my bias, so I mean, I think all trauma occurs in context, you know, and most all trauma is very interpersonal in nature. So, you know, it's perpetrated at the hands of another person or it's simultaneously experienced in a community. And so really for us to understand how to get people better, I think we have to look at the relational parts of People and the effects that trauma has on people's relationships. And one of the, I think, really compelling things to know about trauma is that the best predictor of whether or not someone goes on to have PTSD is how much social support did they have after the trauma. So that might be within their unit, from their leadership, from their loved ones, from their family, from their friends that really. That support is crucial in people moving forward. You know, more important than your IQ, more important than how much money you've made, more important than your childhood history. So it's. I think it's a real opportunity for us to think about including loved ones to try to bolster that. And at the same time, we know that loved ones, family, friends can really be affected by the symptoms of the disorder, you know, can really constrict people, as Brian talked about, you know, hunkering down, you know, like we don't go out to restaurants or we go out to restaurants, but we only certain, sit sit in certain places or go at certain times. And, you know, that can really impact on people's relationship quality if they don't feel like they can be out and enjoying the things that people in connection do with one another. So, my colleagues and I have now tested a particular form of cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for PTSD with the idea of improving not just PTSD, but also the relationships that surround the person who has PTSD and to help the loved ones who are a living alongside the person who has been
1: traumatized. So is that the kind of research or treatment that you're most excited about these days?
3: One of the treatments that we didn't talk about from an individual level is cognitive processing therapy. So that's the other kind of frontline individual therapy. And I, in the last 10 years, have been really trying to raise the level of competency of clinicians in Canada in cognitive processing therapy, just so that veterans and others with PTSD are more likely to get these treatments that work because that that's kind of the sad part about PTSD and its treatment and other mental health conditions is that we know there are treatments that work but people aren't getting them. And so I'm very excited about that and and that's true of of CPT cognitive processing therapy but also the couple therapy. But in the last year I've been really thinking about If we have these treatments that work and we want to try to make them accessible, how do we go straight to the consumer? And that has meant, you know, trying to get creative about the use of technology and stripping down these treatments to what we think are really the things that work and putting them online to give greater access to veterans, loved ones. Who are as you know, very remote in our geographically dispersed country, or who may not, who have stigma, who don't want to go to a therapist, or are housebound, or don't have financial means to really get the treatments to them, and to provide some support alongside those online interventions by paraprofessionals or coaches to try to get people to engage and use them. So that I would say that's what I'm really excited about is how do we increase access? Like if we know there are things at work, but no one's using them, like what does it matter? We've got to figure out, you know, how to get it to people, get it to the people.
1: Great. And just a plug here, we have an episode on e-mental health talking about the vast and profound opportunities that it provides for us and really encourage you to listen to that episode as well. It's pretty obvious that you are really stoked about these evidence-based treatments. Wondering, is there a case in certain situations for symptom management? And this might include things like medication, cannabis, yoga, acupuncture, transcranial magnetic stimulation. I don't pretend to know what that means. Sure. Like, I I think it's
3: important to say that I'm a clinician who happens to like math. So I, you know, I'm trying to test these treatments and show that they work, but there's always place for innovation. And, you know, what we're practicing now, we may not be practicing 10 years from now that, you know, hopefully the field keeps evolving. And there are clients who may not be willing to do the trauma-focused treatments that I mentioned before, or haven't profited fully from them. And so I do think it's important for us to think about other strategies that may be complementary to those treatments, or maybe the treatments that are used only. I think the caveat I might add is that with these symptom management strategies, people should have informed consent about how likely are they li- to cause or to result in symptom management. Because for example, med- the med- the available medications for PTSD are not that great in terms of symptom management. I mean, they do help some, but they are not particularly robust and you're, you're going to have to stay on them to be able to maintain those improvements that you get. So everyone gets to make their informed decision and you know while I might have a bias for a particular format of therapy and and hope people would try it that doesn't mean there there shouldn't be other available options and for us to be testing new ones like some of the ones that you mentioned. So, you know, testing cannabis. I've been involved in a recent trial of using MDMA you know, also known as ecstasy or molly on the street as a strategy to try to catalyze or improve these talk therapies that are trauma focused. So I think we always have to be trying to push the envelope to see how we can get more people better and more people better faster.
1: Thank you so much, Candace. I'm so grateful for those of you with scientific minds who help us figure these all out at the scales that you do. So I'd like to bring Brian back into the conversation now. So what I'd like to ask both of you first is, why is it difficult for veterans to seek help? I know, Candice, you mentioned that there's stigma and there are stereotypes that prevent people for, from coming forward, but I know there are other reasons for that, and have these reasons changed over time as our cultures have changed?
2: So I'll take a, a shot at that. I would say one of the things you categorize this under a, an external pressure, but it's the institutionalized side of it that I think is certainly prevalent for me. Whenever you go into a doctor in the in the military, you're you're risking your career. Now we try and tell people to to not think about that before they walk into a doctor's office, but that is certainly one of the things that's occurring in the world of of mental health and when you look at any other part of your body we generally know that you know a broken leg will be fixed in 6 months and so on and so forth so there's there's an acceptance level that's different when someone is going in with one of those known conditions on on what their path is going to look like for the next couple of months and i'm sure Candace could probably answer this one better better than I can, but I I would say from a patient and a veteran's perspective, I don't know when depression gets better. I don't know what the lifespan of the problem of handling severe anxiety is. And even if I did, then what would be the complicating factors of having that in your family and having separation anxiety in your children and so on and so forth? So, it's a lot more complicated once it's higher than the shoulders in terms of understanding what the projected path is in the next couple months. And it carries risk on your career, the career you have, and the career you might want after. A lot of our soldiers leave the military and go on to conservation, corrections, to work at Canada Border Services, the, the RCMP, all of which will have their own screening and a significant diagnosis can have strong implications on that. The term within the Canadian military is is being put on category and what that essentially means is while they're working on your problem you are largely undeployable which some people might look at and go well good because your problem came from Afghanistan but then you're also unpromotable. You start entering a pathway where you get reassessed in six months and reassessed in six months. But if you start ticking those boxes in the wrong direction for too long, now you're on the path to getting kicked out. And that happened to me. And so that's one of the strongest barriers, I would say, and the most, one of the most hard to tear down, is the risk the soldier feels to their career by speaking up.
1: Candace, what are you seeing?
3: Yeah, no, I, I agree with Brian and, you know, just to kind of add a compare contrast, this is one thing that I've kind of noticed looking on at Canadian versus American policy about that. I think the American policy has been, a I think, a little bit more liberal about we'll treat people with PTSD and we'll redeploy them and try, I think, trying to change the view about people's fitness, that people may be fit and have problems within a certain bandwidth. I mean, obviously if people are more debilitated by their problems, it may be hard for them to perform their duties. And I think there's a difference in that culturally across the two countries. I also think, I'm just thinking like broad view, like think about World War II veterans, like who kind of came back and sucked it up, right? So I think our views about, In some ways, I think there is a liberalizing of veterans being more willing to seek help. And I think it's really important for us to differentiate between, as Brian mentioned, what are the barriers for active duty service members and what are the barriers for veterans after they're discharged, right? So, and I think those are different barriers for the veterans. Just maybe to speak a little bit about the veterans is, I do think one of the interesting differences in Canada in the US veterans healthcare is is the socialized medicine that exists in the in the US and here it's kind of it's flipped right so I think a lot of veterans are in places where they may not have access to providers who understand veterans I mean it's its own subcultural competency in my mind For for providers to understand, like, what was it like to serve? And what is it like to have that designation to be a veteran now? And they may also not know the most recent updates in mental health care. And so I think there are different barriers and impediments, and probably good for us not to group them together, but to try to work on each as they affect both service members and veterans, and maybe differently. Joanne, if I could add to that, because this has been a central point of my advocacy
2: and the stuff I've been trying to get people to realize, is the military is a culture. We have our own food. It's not good, but we do have it. We have our own music. We have traditions. And we're not understood by people that aren't us. We have a lot of the telltale signs of a unique and distinct culture. and. I think if people realized that more, they would be able to help in a more direct and easier to access way. I can tell you one circumstance, for example, in my own care, when I went forward, the first doctor I wound up dealing with was a military one who was there to figure out if I was a risk to the military. And the next one they sent me to on the civilian side would ask me questions like, well, if if this incident happened yesterday, why would you go it the next day? And had this completely unnuanced version of what a soldier would be up to in a conflict zone. She would approach her, her questioning of how I was doing and what, what was wrong with me from the idea of I was at some union job where I could decide to not go in tomorrow. And I found the, the questioning just to be... So off-putting, like, we are not going to get anywhere. And that might have been a really highly skilled clinician that I wound up walking away from, but I had to because she had no context at all of the culture I came from. And I think that's a really, really big thing to, to poke at a little more because for me it was, it was a big deal.
1: So if you talk about the military having a culture that's unique to that group of people, how would you describe it?
2: If you ever encounter someone that gets in an argument with their own family member but will defend that family member to everyone outside the family, you start to understand how the military tends to be. I worked with people that I found to be quite frustrating individuals, but that wasn't allowed to really be commented on by anyone that wasn't from inside the family. As soon as it was outside, you would defend them. I think that is a good thing. But that can also push away help. It can push away even family members. Sometimes this is one of the things we found with spouses is that the soldier will come home and the spouse certainly wants them to get care. But when they do, one of the questions is, well, why can't you talk to me? And even though you might love that person intensely, you're trying to associate with people that understand what you're talking about. And that can create a bit of a problem.
1: Candice, anything else to add there? I just think Brian's making
3: such a good point. I think I've been surprised about in being in Canada is just, you know, most Canadian veterans are getting their care through Medivy Blue Cross Blue Shield, like a relatively small portion go to the operational stress injury clinics, for example. And there's yet not a lot of requirement for people to understand this is its own oxygen, right? Like the, the culturally, the, the idea that you will put your country, like you will die for your country. You will drive on like that. That's its own thing. The idea that you're relying on other people to have your back in life and death, like that's its own subculture, right? The idea that you, Will kill someone if you need to kill them like that's a that's a different notion like just to rattle off some examples and I think I think a lot of people don't get that and so I can imagine I mean Brian did a great job of saying like it's frustrating for someone if you're going to a provider and they're supposed to help you and get you. I feel like some basic competencies are really needed to be effective for me to develop a relationship with a veteran to, to for them to think like anything I have to say would be sensible, right? Based on me them thinking I I get them, that I understand them even if I didn't serve as part of the military.
1: So continuing on about the two countries, how do you think American and Canadian soldiers experiences and resulting mental health Outcomes. How do those vary given that the U.S. is focused on combat while Canada is a peacekeeping nation?
2: So I'll take a shot at that. I actually don't like the way that's framed, but I get what you're saying. The Canadian Forces is good at humanitarian aid and it is good at peacekeeping as a byproduct of what it does. Those are things we just happen to be good at because we are always focused on the thing that is worse. The Canadian military trains for war, and it is ready to fight a war at any given time. And then when the mission changes, well, then we go and do specified training for that. So that's an issue there that's a difference between our populations, but not between our militaries. The Americans know they're training for war, so do we. I would say there's probably a difference between what the American population thinks they're doing and what the Canadian population thinks we're doing. And that's something that actually really gets under the skin of veterans, and I would say because we see that distinction that shouldn't be made in the first place as part of the, the lack of, of education of what it is we're, we're doing, to the point that even when we went to actual war zones, people in this country still thought we were peacekeeping. I can assure you there was no peace to keep in Afghanistan, and the very beginnings of the Balkans, there wasn't a peace there either. I think that's part of the injury from that conflict that people still don't get.
1: Thank you for correcting me.
2: And I'll add one more thing, if you don't mind, is one of the things I know because I served with American forces when I was overseas is actually the military context can change your own culture. If you would look at, say, a period in American history like the war in Vietnam, where you would say one grouping, one class of peoples tended to go to the war, and another didn't. And you watch what that did to the psyche of the country and what it did to the cultural play in the country. And that was a huge situation for America. For us, not so, because our military is so small, and it doesn't necessarily draw from any one area more than the other. So if you follow what I'm saying there, I would look at An event like the war in Vietnam to be a great point, not a fantastic point, but a very important point in American history. Whereas if I would look back and say, when's the Canadian point that was this critical? You'd have to go back to World War II to find a military event that shifted Canadian history.
1: So, Candace, do you have anything to add about that? You know, given your time in America and Americans' different views. Of the role of the military and and perhaps being more appreciative of that. How do the American veterans deal with mental health challenges? Is it easier for them?
3: I don't know if I would get into which country might be easier or not. I think Brian's point's a really good one. Like this categorization of combatant versus peacekeeper. It's so much fuzzier than that. And I think One thing that troubles me with what gets imbued with that is that then peacekeeping is less stressful than being a combatant. And I think that is not proven out in the rates of mental health problems across the two countries. They're nearly equivalent. I think there could be very stressful experiences in all kinds of ways that people serve their country. I think the difference might be in the U.S., It's just the military is a lot bigger, like most everyone knows someone who serves in the military. And I think that's a little bit less so here in my own observation, that it's the prominence of it is probably a bit less. I think that all kinds of military experiences can be stressful, including like one thing we haven't really talked about is also just sexual trauma, for example, and, and our recognition of both men and women being traumatized, not even by their exposure to peacekeeping or combat experiences, but you know, within the military. So I think there's lots of different ways that people can experience stress within the military. And us trying to think about it in a more complicated way can probably help our culture understand the ways in which people could be affected by those experiences, and therefore decrease stigma and be more supportive of the people who are putting their life and limb on the line for us in their service.
1: So mental health is not just a veterans issue. How are the impacts felt by families, by friends, and by society as a whole?
3: I could say a little bit about just because I'm very interested in, you know, us thinking beyond the individual when we think about mental health, because, you know, it really is a ripple effect. You know, people don't exist in isolation. And so really thinking about how there can be a lot of burden on family members, children. We know that like the rates of child mental health problems are higher in parents who have mental health conditions the rates of mental health problems and partners are higher, you know, as a result of living with someone. It's a strain on people's physical health and their mental health. And so for us to, I think, better appreciate the broader range of ways in which people suffer beyond just what's going inside them, I think is really important for us in terms of thinking then how we can help people from a more interpersonal perspective.
1: Brian, how did your PTSD and your healing process affect your own family?
3: There was a
2: lot of struggle in there. First time I went to Afghanistan was when my oldest son was four, my youngest was two, and I came back to one kid that didn't know who I was and the other that was really upset with me for leaving. And up until that point in their lifetime, they'd only known me to go away for, you know, at the most a month or a couple of days here and there on courses or whatnot. And then you go away. Within a year of coming back, I was gone again on another task overseas. And I do remember a moment where my then five year old says to me, Don't let the Taliban kill you, Dad. And that's a very different. Way to be sent off than most people get from a five year old. The concept that the word Taliban would be on the tip of the the tongue of a young boy shows that it's a different family in a different circumstance than most people around me. So, what I would say in that regard is how we get the trauma is kind of what's related to being a veteran. And then I would say that the diagnosis isn't really veteran-specific. I mean, the doctor can tell you better than I can what symptomology is this issue and which one is that. And, I mean, I'm sure you would find that a problem I have might be something that a paramedic could get or this could happen to an abuse victim. It's not my job that brings about the diagnosis. It's what symptoms are coming out of me. But I'll go to the end of that, and I would say that in our treatment, what one of the things is amongst the veteran community is we do ask to not be treated different or better, but be treated on our own. I do know of cases where some of our soldiers have gone and been sent to addiction centers, for example, and in that circumstance, they're in a group therapy session, if you will, with criminals that have been sent there with drug dealers that have been sent there. And the idea that, you know, two combat veterans are going to sit in a circle with eight drug dealers and criminals and express their deep, darkest thoughts and converse in an open fashion, it's just not going to happen. And so in that regard, that's one of the things I think amongst the veteran community we try to push is, you know what, I don't necessarily want different treatment for me and my friends. I don't think we deserve better than the rest of the society, but you may have to treat us in a group on our own the same way you would, for example, and this is where I go back to culture. If we were a group of eight Syrian immigrants that have come from that war, you would probably recognize the culture and say we have to address that and we have to build that into the therapy. And I say that for us as well. Because I've seen many cases where the Canadian taxpayer's dollar has gone into something like that, and it had no chance of working to begin with. Whereas things that I've participated in kind of along the lines of what Candice was mentioning with exposure therapy, but who would I ever be in a room and allow her to expose me to? Right? Who, who would I be comfortable considering the fact that I've been willing to squeeze the trigger on my government's behalf if I need to, considering the fact that I've been targeted by people that want to get rid of me, considering those very unique things, there's a very finite group of people I'm going to enter a therapy session with. And that is something I demand to be respected as I go forward as a patient. And that's something I think we're missing.
1: During the intro, we talked about veterans who represented diverse ages, cultures, abilities, and genders. Brian, are these specific groups of veterans assessed, trained, and maybe monitored differently before, during, and after deployment? And recognizing their unique (coughs) traits, how could they be best served?
2: Well, there are some differences. I think there are expected ones. I mean, when I was in the military, I had to do a physical exam every five years or when you're going to get promoted. And then that changes when you reach a certain age. So there's standard checkups that will happen to that degree. But in terms of gender, I would tell you that the Canadian military is actually more advanced than the Canadian society in this regard. And a lot of people might find that shocking. But We've been treating people like you're just a soldier for a lot longer than people have been treating each other like you're just a citizen. And we had integration in the forces years before it was actually law throughout the country. So I think we actually do a lot better of that than most people think. That said, I'm not in any one of those groups. So it's very difficult for me to say what it's like for someone else. Being someone that ran deployment training for my soldiers and conducted post-deployment training for them when they come back, I didn't ever see a difference there.
1: Candace, can you predict what type of challenges each group might face, or is a person's history and personality a better predictor of mental health outcomes?
3: Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I think, you know, that's, there's not like one factor that really predicts all of this. It's a number of them, but it really is a lot about what happens in the aftermath and, you know, how do we help people after they're exposed to stressful events or challenges to support them in that recovery process, you know, really minimize the negativity that can come their way. Brian, I thought, did a really elegant job of, of talking about the adjustments, right? When you come out of a peacekeeping mission and then you're plopped back in, like how do you facilitate that adjustment? I think really much more important than us getting stuck on the factors that we can't really change. You know, I can't change an individual's history and w- what their childhood was like. But I can change what going forward, that leadership's interaction with them, the kind of care that they might receive and the support they might receive to try to facilitate a recovery process. Here's the thing, most all of us, if it's stressful enough, all of us are going to have mental health symptoms. You know, I'm going to have nightmares about what happened. I'm going to feel more vigilant and more on guard. I might have a startle response that's heightened but it's really about helping people to recover so that they don't have those kinds of symptoms long range that I think is really important for us to think about in terms of helping people longer term. I
2: think that's an interesting
3: point. Candice, you just mentioned vigilance. That was something
2: that was a big adjustment for me, but I would tell people that hypervigilance in Canada is just called vigilance in a war zone. That's the appropriate amount of vigilance you should have when you come out of a threat situation is, I look at every backpack like it was going to explode, every hand might have a gun, and every dog was going to bite me, because that's the environment you're in. That's actually the truth there. You have to operate that way. That doesn't fit here. But how do we flip that switch? Specifically, if I was in the process of training my soldiers to go over to a conflict zone, The specific training on the nature of that mission would probably be from three to six months. So if it takes me three to six months to get you ready to go to the next Afghanistan, but what's the training cycle to bring you back home? And as much as we do try and implement things, there is reintegration training. When we came out of Afghanistan, one of the best things the Canadian Army did was they stuck us in Cyprus for four days just to breathe a little bit. But that is not six months, though, of unflipping the switch that we switched. And I think that's a key point of what she was just talking about is what is vigilance and what's the appropriate level of it?
3: And also, Brian, if I might just tag on to that is it's unrealistic. Four days is lovely. I'm so glad they gave it to you. But that's just not enough time. Like if you look at the data in most people's recovery, it's a minimum three months. Right. And that's without any other things coming into the mix. So, you know, maybe we need to right size our expectations of people, too, in terms of getting themselves back here. Right. And readjusting to what is the norm around safety and the need for safety as it relates to vigilance. And that has a lot of operational implications, right, in terms of having a ready force. But maybe we need to be more realistic about just the human body and mind and its adjustment process, and that it does take time for people to get themselves back here. And that's not pathology if you're still misfiring, because you're still getting yourself back into the here and now and not back there.
1: So what about veterans' mental health as a human rights issue, or a social justice issue?
3: Well,
2: I think when it comes to that, veterans don't expect to be treated differently than the rest of society. But what people have to realize is that fill out a form for life insurance and read the fine print and see who's not included. You know, look at a provincial compensation board, for example, and look at the very few groups of people that don't qualify, and you'll find out. And so in that regard, we don't necessarily need special treatment, but we do need a department out there that is there to fill in those gaps that the rest of society doesn't get. This is one thing that I think was uh, key to why I decided to get involved in advocacy was I found a lot of people thought that, hey, you've got Veterans Affairs, that means you get more, better, and faster. And One of the truths of it was without Veterans Affairs, I wouldn't get anything at all because as a member of the military, I don't qualify for some of those other things. So I need this government agency to do it for me. That's one of the things I really like to focus on because as a human right, it's like, to be fair, I just want Canadian rights. I just want the health care that's out there. With that in mind, it's a challenge. If you're going to bring someone out of Iraq and you'll potentially send them to, you know, Poland, Ukraine, Latvia next year, and he's working in a COVID hospital in Montreal right now or, or wherever you might be, there's lots of folks right now that aren't at home because they're getting ready for forest fire season. You know, where do you deliver health care where the average citizen might have to wait for 18 months? Well, we don't have that 18 months. We don't have the four months to wait for an assessment. So that's where our care may need to be different. Because if you want the resiliency to redeploy that soldier, you're going to need to give him care on the military schedule.
1: So what about the Hollywoodization of military culture and how bullying and spirit-breaking are portrayed in movies? So we've all seen the, the screaming sergeant at boot camp or the recruit who's ordered to scrub the the bathroom floor with a toothbrush. How does all that impact on real-life soldiers and those of us who rely on them?
2: So it's a good point. I think the profession of arms, the military, is probably one of the most over-portrayed jobs out there. I mean, you probably couldn't find a section in a movie store or even on Netflix of movies about carpenters or movies about nurses, but there's piles of movies that depict a, a military event or military life, and that actually, I, I would suggest, it does a disservice because they're not documentaries. They don't show the event. One of my favorite movies, I'm not going to plug it, but it was a movie about disappointment in the military. It was a movie came out a number of years ago where the whole mission they were training for didn't happen. And then the movie ends. And everyone, I remember watching it in the theater with a couple of other friends of mine from the forces. And the movie theater was filled with everyone other than that. And everyone was disappointed. It still makes me laugh today. I remember who I watched the movie with. And I remember the three of us burst out laughing because it was the only film that actually depicted what it's like. You can train for something in the military and have it never happen that's the nature of being ready you know the military did a very good job of training for the nuclear attack that never happened in the cold war but part of why it never happened was we were ready for it to happen and that's one of the things i think people miss so in basic training yeah it's it's a little rough you got to get up earlier but it For any parent out there that's ever told their kid to do something and heard the answer, I can't do that, well, you start to realize that, well, yes, you can do that, but you need to be put in a position where you realize you have to do that. So, yes, the military is going to make you cold, wet, tired, and hungry, and it's going to talk to you probably a little harsher than you might have in the past because it's building your resiliency to stress. Now, Nowhere in there is there a justification for discrimination or justification for abuse. I don't need to scream my head off in some soldier's face to get my point across, but there does need to be some application of stress, and you need to demonstrate the ability to still be able to do your job under that. And so, yes, basic training is a little hard in that regard, but the average military day doesn't involve you screaming yes sir, no sir, and saluting all the time it's regularly just a job in uniform but the uniform just says that if we don't come to an agreement as to how this ought to go it's predecided which plan we're going with and it's the one that that guy said because he's in charge but i would say to you every job has that you know in a hospital you've got units of the hospital that are run by the boss and carpenters work that way mechanics have someone running the shop so i would suggest to you that there's a big mischaracterization out there of what military life is like, and it doesn't help us.
1: Candace, any observations? No, I
3: just would add on. I think that the problem with stereotypes is that they're based in some reality, but then they're overblown and overgeneralized. And so I think... The examples of people being abused in these training settings, of course, there are examples of that, but like the frequency with which they occur and the severity in which they occur as they're portrayed in movies, I think leaves people feeling dubious about the military and its culture, which then creates a divide, right? It's like in others, them. I just think ultimately is not helpful for anyone. I think it's a disservice for everyone.
2: You know, I can remember a moment in Chilliwack many years ago, over a decade ago, where I was teaching a particular group of soldiers how to dig trenches properly. And I remember this one trench where they just weren't doing it. They weren't doing it deep enough, they weren't doing it wide enough, and they weren't putting the amount of time and effort into doing it right. And I let them know that. And two years after that, one of those soldiers came back from Afghanistan, and he said, you know what, I never thought I'd need to dig a trench And he'd been there for a week, and they were getting mortared, and they had to dig. And so, you know, when things were approached in the military of you need to do this, well, the reason you need to do this is because you're highly likely to go to a place where you actually need to do this, where your life will depend on the lesson I'm teaching you. And that might be one of the things that makes things come across a little harsh. But to be honest, The lessons you're learning in the military aren't lessons that you're allowed to not get. At the end of a course on a machine gun, you have to know it, and people will die if you don't. That's just the nature of it, and I don't think there's as much of an understanding of that as there needs to be.
1: So we can't have this conversation without touching on COVID-19 and its mental health impacts on veterans. So Brian, what are you hearing from veterans about COVID and how it's impacting their existing mental health challenges?
2: I guess if I'm going to talk about the positives first, the Canadian Forces trains every soldier in basic training on what we used to call NBC, which is now called CBRN, which is essentially, at the time I was doing it, nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare training. So Dealing with a biological agent, a virus, is actually something Canadian soldiers are trained to do. Specific to that, there's a specialized Canadian unit within the Canadian forces that does just that on a domestic terrorism side. So our knowledge of bacterium and viruses and them being weaponized is there. Well, that's not what COVID-19 is, or at least it's not our understanding of it. But I guess I'd approach it by saying... We do know a thing or two about this. I'll tell you this, though. The Canadian military has very good training, very good capability, but limited amounts of it. And so, you know, you'd get a a tougher answer out of the military if you ask them than this. But there's only so long we can do this. And like I've said to you before, we're doing it with the people that just got back from somewhere and the ones that are getting ready to go. How long can we do it for? When you go on from there, I would say COVID 19 is for the veteran community. As I mentioned before, we've got people with a tendency to hermit, and we try through therapies and peer support to kind of break that barrier a bit. And then here we are with this reality that has said go back to your basement, stay in your house, and don't visit people. And that's a bit of a challenge.
1: So, what does it do to a soldier's psyche? he's abroad as a peacekeeper, and he comes back and he's maybe feeding an elderly gentleman or changing a diaper or whatever. What does that do to a soldier's psyche?
2: Well, I think people have to remember that you're still sending a soldier. If you send them to war or you send them to a hospital, you're sending the same tool. You know, it's like using a sledgehammer for everything, including things that don't need a sledgehammer. But you're getting that. You're getting what you asked for. And I think people are starting to see, for example, the honesty in reporting of what the soldiers have seen in the last couple of weeks that they've been there. I'm not sure the Canadian society was expecting that. I'm not sure they were expecting that the main information they would get on what's going on in to inside these centers was just going to be in the blunt, honest truth that comes out of a military report. But that's a good thing. That's actually something we should be lending to the rest of society is how to assess, how to honestly report, and how to forward the information to the people that should have it. That's a strength of the force. And I wish we could emulate that more throughout the rest of society.
1: Candace, what are you hearing about COVID-19 in veterans and what are you learning that you can maybe apply as you move forward in your work?
3: You know, I think the only thing I would add is that I think probably just the uncertainty certainly probably increases everyone's mental health sy- symptoms if they were already experiencing them. The so, you know, the social isolation is not good for any of us and trying to find ways around that. I also think people being you know cooped up in potentially stressful environments you know with families that may be in crisis or struggling I think it's just a time for people to find themselves particularly stressed out. That's what I am hearing on the other side what I'm hearing is that veterans are really appreciating the Providers providing more online therapy. A lot of providers in my circle have been reluctant to do that and are forced now to get more comfortable with that. And I think that's been a welcome change that I'm hoping will lead to more options for veterans and how they access their care.
2: She's right on that. This is going to produce a silver lining, and that silver lining will be it's going to force us to progress on exactly what she's talking about, on delivering care over the Internet. I also think, though, it will highlight a couple problems. One is that we're going to have potentially different tiers of care based on your connectivity. And the care that we can deliver to someone in Vancouver may be different than what we can do in an extreme rural environment. But I think she's right, is this has pushed people and patients as well to realize that, you know what? I'm going to have to try do this over the web. And that's there. I, I'd also add this, is that we have, just like every other situation, we have the stresses of everyone else. My biggest problem in COVID as a veteran is what's going on with my kids and how they're suffering through not seeing their friends and not going to school. I have the same situation as every dad across this country.
1: Such amazing information. I can't thank you both enough. For sharing your incredible insights and ideas and passions. I'm just overwhelmed with what you are both doing. So let's now bring this all to a finer point. Candace, knowing that Brian is a veteran and an advocate, what would you like him to know about your vision for the future of veterans' mental health?
3: Honestly, what I'd like Brian to know is I'd love to partner with him into the future. And to, you know, figure out how, honestly, as mental health providers and, you know, myself as a treatment developer and researcher, sometimes we're building stuff and doing things in silos. And I think what I would want to say is that I I want to co-create a vision of creating things that actually people want. So bringing that side of the veteran's voice to then kind of what I might know about, Psychology theory and what works to build something that more people will want to come to and profit from.
1: That is so exciting for me. Much of my work is helping to build communication and collaboration among people from all sectors. And a partnership between the two of you would be just such a cool outcome from this podcast. So, Brian, what would you like Candace to know about? Veterans' needs and recognizing their diverse experiences, and how you'd like to move forward with your work and maybe with Candace's help.
2: Well, one of the things that really interests me as a patient, as an advocate, and I guess you could call a stakeholder as well in in the whole world is I think veterans want to find a way of how can we put our hand on the steering wheel of research a little bit? How can we? help get involved in that. Often what's happened in the past is we get consulted at the end or we get used in the data study, which is fine. I think we want to be brought in even closer to the beginning of research and what the next way forward is. I'll throw something to you as well. If you ever get to speak to someone from her background again, what I would like people to ask is about the different senses. And this is something I've found amongst myself and my friends, is that some people found a lot of therapy through what they would paint that didn't work at all for me, or some others did from, you know, listening to music. Mm, Not really my thing, but I found the sense of smell could both, if it was a wrong smell for me, trigger an event, and if it was the right smell for me, pull me out of an event. And I would really like someone to drill down on, first of all, what that is, And how do I learn more about it? Because whatever is good, if we can make it replicable, we make it better for other people. I guess I would say this as I wrap up my side of this is I like to remind people that out of the things you invest in, whether it's defense or veterans care or security as a whole, These are some of the things that are intangible in government spending, and they're often easy to overlook. Like if I tell you that, you know, this one government will build more MRI machines, or I think lately with the COVID situation, if you say, well, we're going to spend on masks, gloves, and face shields, people see what that is, they get it. But people don't get what security is. And in fact, security is the absence of a thing. That's something that the average citizen might need to wrap their head around a little bit more. And when it comes to why you need to invest in security forces and military and then why we have to provide care for them afterwards is when we provide a secure nation, a perfectly secure nation, there's nothing on the list of things that happened. Whereas if we fill in potholes, well, we can count the potholes. And so often it becomes very hard to quantify to people, especially if they feel the country hasn't been attacked in a number of years or they don't see a threat over the horizon. It's easy for them to say, well, let's spend a little less on this bubble we call security. Well, that's how veterans' services get cut. That's how hospitals get shut. And I challenge people, if you like security, you need to pay for it.
1: We're fast approaching the finish line, so I'd like to bring us back to the title, which is Veterans Mental Health, Personal and Scientific Perspectives on Healing. And although I don't have a personal or scientific perspective, I do have one as founder and CEO of the Fresh Outlook Foundation. Our passion is inspiring community conversations for sustainable change And we do that in a variety of ways. But the real crux behind everything we do is triggering better conversations and collaborations among people from all walks of life to address important community challenges. So I believe that when policies and programs are created that reflect the collective insights of decision makers, veterans, advocates, and mental health professionals, will take a huge step toward healing. This inclusive approach is not only the right thing to do, but it also generates the most robust and innovative solutions because each group brings unique gifts to the table. So, Brian, can you comment on this need to meld stakeholders' unique characteristics?
2: I actually think... What Candace was mentioning earlier, if we could call that the olive branch she's offered it, is, first of all, I'm going to say yes. And it's part of the way forward. Patients and clinicians are also stakeholders in forward progress, especially in mental health. You know, if you look at the mental health of veterans, it's pretty easy to see that the military would benefit from that, but so will the local mental health systems that exist We'll have less problems on the correctional system if we tackle this properly. You know, the kids going to school, our kids, my kids will be better off if I'm healthier. And there's such a ripple down effect, a positive one of good care and a negative one when it's not done right. And so that's the way stakeholders need to move forward. I think patients and clinicians need to be moving hand in hand forward and being able to influence each other and what that looks like.
1: Candace, anything you can add about how the academic community can contribute to this discussion and in the actions that are needed? I mean, I think
3: that the biggest way the academic community can benefit is to just listen. Obviously, we have science and theories, but, you know, how do they actually apply? And so really listening to the stakeholders that Brian just mentioned and to be part of community building and not, you know, in our towers so that we can actually be exchanging ideas and not just letting them flow one direction. I think that represents a change in how universities are trying to think about their role in our society. And I think that's very important as it relates to veterans and service members and being more actively involved in listening to them and their needs and how we can better serve and better research to provide more information.
1: So to wrap things up, can each of you share in one word or one sentence what you think about the following? The greatest challenge veterans face in their move toward better mental health. Brian?
2: I think it's the reintegration piece coming back into the country and the country wrapping their arms around them as they
3: come home.
1: Candace. I would say access. The greatest structural barrier to optimizing veterans' mental health.
3: I can go first. I think the structural barrier that we need to change is the expertise of the provider network. Brian,
2: Part of the mechanism going forward of helping people is got to incorporate the peer support systems more. As a veteran, if I read in a book that a particular therapy is the right one, I'll think about it. But if four of my buddies have gone and said that's the thing to do, I'll go for sure.
1: The greatest opportunity for strong veterans' mental health?
2: Good leaders, brave leaders, and leaders that themselves are willing to come forward if they have a problem. That was a huge part of me getting better, was I seen someone else that was suffering and was brave enough to come
3: forward. It's leadership. Candice? I'm going to say connection, which goes along with the peer support idea, but also people banding together.
1: The one thing we could do right now to improve veterans' mental health?
2: I don't want to sound like a broken record. I think the biggest thing is the country being educated about what we're doing, and that will prepare the country to receive us better when we come back from doing it.
3: And you know what? Mine is very aligned with that. I think it's like seeing you, you know, that we actually see you, meaning that we recognize you, but we actually see you if you need help.
1: And. Finally, your personal commitment to being the change we want to see in this field.
2: Well, for me, paths may change down the road, but in terms of advocating for veterans that are suffering, I'm not going anywhere. I think it's natural to go that way once other people have helped you.
1: It's all about patience and persistence, isn't it? And I promise to continue the conversation about veterans' mental health. So, if any of you listening have an idea that you'd like us to investigate for a future podcast, please send me an email to joe at freshoutlookfoundation.org. Thank you again, Brian and Candace, for joining me. I've so enjoyed getting to know you both and now have a much greater understanding and appreciation of the people who serve to keep our country glorious and free.
2: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, first of all, get to meet Candace. Joanne, you've helped me give me a moment to just explain my story a little bit. And I think going forward, what I really want is people to realize that, you know, it's not the Canadian forces, it's your Canadian forces. You you, you not only pay for it, but you have a very direct stake in it, it doing its job well. And that also comes with it, the implication, the responsibility to look after your Canadian Forces veterans. And every opportunity that we have to speak up about that issue and clarify and put our finger on exactly what that means, it's a good opportunity. So thank you very much.
1: Candice.
3: I just want to say what a delight it was to have the dialogue with Brian. Such a pleasure to meet you. And Joanne, thank you so much for your commitment to actually facilitate these dialogues, to really push these issues forward and heighten people's awareness to the importance of them. And perhaps my favorite thing to come out of the episode was the possibility of getting to partner with Brian To further the cause of military and veterans' mental health.
2: I wanted to just tell my story a little bit. I wanted to have people hear me, and I want them to hear me as a patient and as someone that's trying to do something about the mental health situation for veterans. I I don't want them to hear me as a victim. I don't see myself that way. I'm very proud of what I've done, and I would do it again, but I wanted to make sure that I could explain to people that it's not just guns and bombs that present the problem. There's lots of stressors outside of that. Lots of things that get acted on or witnessed or you have to participate in or don't get to do anything about that create the stress for veterans as well. And I thought that was a important point to drive home.
1: You can connect with Brian by email at brianmckenna at hotmail.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-M-C-K-E-N-N-A. And you can follow him on Twitter at B-R-I-A-N-M-C-K-E-N-N-A-C-D. For more about Candace's work, email her at candace.monson at ryerson.ca. That's C-A-N-D-I-C-E dot M-O-N-S-O-N at ryerson.ca. You can check the show notes at Fresh Outlook Foundation for more contact information and all episode resources. A huge thank you to the Social Planning and Research Council of BC for its ongoing support of the podcast and for our virtual summits. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support future episodes, Check out the options at freshoutlookfoundationorg slash donations. In closing, as Winnie the Pooh says, I'm so lucky to have something that makes saying goodbye so hard. So instead, I'll say be healthy and let's connect again next week.